Standard Issue for all women. Hey champs, welcome to episode 13 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and my mum once made me do an impression of Bobby Ball in front of Bobby Ball. I'm joined by... I'm Hannah Dunleavy and on Friday I got drunk and applied to be on Pointless. <laughs> and I'm Jen Offord and I resent that It has been remade because I'm too old to live in fear of my friends' social media feeds. Later on, I chat to music guru and all-around good egg Liz Buckley about the one, the only, Debbie Harry slash Blondie. Leanne Davis tells us about life with her mum, who has early-onset dementia. Carrie Adloyd chats to Sarah Pascoe about Sarah's stage adaptation of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Our Sarah answers another one of your live questions. And I do Disney's Bambi. I'm Twitter-pated. Are you Twitter-pated, Jen? I still don't know what that word means. Fair enough. But first... Building walls, bloody women, and accidental masturbation. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, the part of the show where we smile at the news like little Lord Fauntle Mog chuffed to buggery by the queue at the local food bank before quickly remembering poverty is not at all uplifting, you fucking 18th century throwback. China made a request of US press. Sorry, I'm going to start that again. China made a request of Donald Trump this week to back down from its war of words with North Korea, what with them firing another missile over Japan. Asked about the prospect for direct talks, a White House spokesman said, as the president and his national security team have repeatedly said, now is not the time to talk to North Korea. Adding, he's had a very busy day and we just had to skip nap time. Oh, bless. Oh, no, not bless. No. Not at all. No. Mm. Porn stars banded together, and not in a sexy way, to diss Ted Cruz after it was revealed the Texas senator had liked a porn clip on Twitter. Despite the perfectly logical conclusion that Cruz gets his sexual kicks by dressing as a gun, retiring to his gun room and looking at pictures of guns while polishing his meat gun with an actual gun, it turns out that the man who tried to uphold a ban on dildos might just like watching other people at it while ransacking his dignity. Wiping the smile off his sweaty red cum face. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) X-rated actresses made an absolutely smashing video for the website Funny or Die, revealing how horrified they were to think of Cruz watching them. I can see your tiny beady eyes staring at me and it gives my soul diarrhoea, says one. Cruz has, of course, claimed a staffer inadvertently hit like. Sure, pal. Sure. Frankly, I'm expecting Ted's forthcoming porn flick about premature ejaculation, speed, cruise control, to be an absolute smash. Meanwhile, there was a pause long enough in conversations about other ongoing clusterfucks that America even had time to think about that wall they were all so keen on this time last year. And the news is that that wall is definitely being built. Probably. Possibly. Maybe not right now, but absolutely 100% it's happening. They are building that wall, sort of. But no, really, it's a priority, even though, you know, is it now largely symbolic? Who knows? But it's like totes happening. You can bet your life on it, but maybe don't. Or do, because you should believe that it's going to happen. Don't you worry about that. What's that? Ring, ring. I'm sorry, I've got to take that. Um, You're a gambling woman, right? I am. Uh, Would you put money on the wall? On the wall being built? No, just on the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, on the wall being built. Absolutely not. I am no confident that wall will ever be built other than in a metaphorical, it's always going to be built kind of way. Absolutely, definitely, positively, maybe. Top tips there. Top tips there, guys. Hillary Clinton made the mistake of putting her head above the parapet by publishing new memoir, What Happened? Silly girl. Still wanging on about 2016. Will she never learn? 
The myriad Republican and Democrat politicians, commentators and voters are right, yeah? She didn't win the big shiny President Cup, so she should just shut the fuck up and fade into obscurity. Er, no? Ignoring the fact that Clinton's a career politician, full to brimming with White House experience like no one else's, having been Secretary of State, presidential candidate and a First Lady, there's also the matter of the numerous also-rans still gobbing off in the public and political sphere. John Kerry, still talking. Al Gore, still campaigning. John McCain, still a senator. The difference? Hillary's a woman and therefore not allowed to keep taking up space. Clearly, we are calling bullshit. So maybe you should shut the fuck up, Bernie. Those emails, though. George Osborne's been getting grief from the Tories for attacking Theresa May this week. Georgie Boy seems to be positioning himself as some sort of voice of the people in a paper for Londoners who are predominantly left voting. However, as the heir to the fortune of a luxury wallpaper company who walked into an incredible job that he's in no way qualified for, nothing changes there, eh, George? And as the man who presided over austerity measures that will have impacted on some of the poorest boroughs in the country, which are also in London, well... You do the maths. I'll do a little equation for you here. Hypocrisy plus bellendery times being a dick equals cunt. Also, uh, I have two points. His comments were a little bit um, murdery. They weren't great. There was there was a lot of chopping going yeah, on. Yeah, there was a, there was a little bit of the Owen Smith. Is that that? Oh, yeah, the dude's labeling, name? yeah. Uh, well, it was like murdery slash salad preparation. <laughs> there was a lot of chopping going on. <laughs> some chopping of you and some radicio. Um, my second point is uh, luxury wallpaper. What the fuck is that? Yeah, no, that's, he is the heir to the fortune of a, a posh. I mean, I know what wallpaper company. is, I've got, but luxury... I've got a quick story about luxury wallpaper. Go on, then. Of course you do. I was in Newport, which is a place in Rhode Island that really rich people who used to live in New yeah, York used so to go and have their it. summer houses in. And we were in a house that, on a tour, that used to belong to the Vanderbilts. And I was with my parents, and they're not very technically able. And so when you put the headset in, I press the button, and then they both go, it's not working, so I have to take my headset off and like, then press their button. So they are running at about a 30-second delay from where I am. That's standard parent procedure. Yeah. Mm. So we're walking round, and the, the, the man on the audio tape says, and if you look here and you touch the wallpaper... You can see it looks like silver that's threaded through that wallpaper. But in fact, it's platinum. Mm. Oh. And then 30 seconds later, I hear my dad go, fucking hell! <laughs> <laughs> anyway, talking of people with too many jobs, not enough life experience, that's not my dad. That's, uh, that's George Osborne. Piss poor buffoon impersonator Boris Johnson called into question the loyalty of young people on anti-Brexit marches, saying they had genuinely split allegiances and that he questioned their pride in this country. Those were his words, not mine. Mm-hmm. I'd have said that they had genuine concerns about their ability to sustain themselves in the future and that I questioned why no one appeared to give a fuck about that. Excellent question. Yeah. Writing in the Daily Telegraph, which foreign secretaries have been using to announce policies since the dawn of... Oh, no, wait, scrub that. Isn't it the sun? Isn't that where he usually announces policies? Uh, I think that's where Gladstone used to announce his policies, yeah, certainly. Okay, Okay, fair Um, enough. The Foreign Secretary also threw in a claim that the NHS could get £350 million a week after Mm. Brexit. Hang on. Which I'm pretty sure I've heard somewhere before. Build that wall. Build Build that that wall. wall. 
Shadow Home Secretary Diane Abbott made the news for the wrong reasons again this week after offending white people during an appearance on Good Morning Sorry, Britain. Sorry, what? Yeah, I know. Big, big stuff, right? What? White people? Yeah. So, Hang on, we're white people. I might care about this. Yeah, yeah no, I'm you listening might, now. You might. I've it's literally true. not been listening at all, but now <laughs> you've mentioned white people. My ears are... Suddenly I'm interested. <laughs> My white ears are aflame. <laughs> well, let me tell you why. While <laughs> describing the online abuse that she regularly enjoys as a black female politician, Diane Abbott used the N-word. Is any Dick. of that sentence allowed? God. Yeah. <laughs> Just to be clear on this, she was using it uh, as an example of language that she is subject to and Twitter subsequently went into meltdown at Abbott's use of the racial slur. This was a sentiment the right-wing press were quick to give oxygen to Less so the offensiveness of the racist and sexist language routinely used against Abbott. Oh, well, she's asking for it, isn't well, she? Well, quite. Uh, she keeps <laughs> talking. Anyway, on the same day, The Sun ran a column by human troll Rod Little in which he claimed that he would only spend a grand on a phone if it automatically rang Abbott at 3am every day to cackle madly at her. So I just have to make a little, uh, you know, disclosure here. Uh, Declaration of interest. Quite. Diane Abbott is, in fact, my MP. Just yours? Just mine. Just mine. For what area? Hackney Hackney and Stoke Newington or something like that. So she is my MP and... I have occasionally found her slightly frustrating. For example, on the Article 50 vote, I was pretty pissed off about that and I think I might even have tweeted her and said I hope she lost her job. But despite those frustrations, what the fuck are people doing? It's almost as if people are pricks, Jen. I know. Did you see Katie Hopkins? I'm sorry I've said her name on our podcast. <laughs> I think we need to put a trigger warning at the start <gasps> of this now. Oh, God, I feel really She calling. compared the Fatberg so to but anyone who. Anyone who doesn't know, that's like a thing in like a sewer in the West End of London. Yeah, didn't she tweet that if, uh, oh, this is what happens if Diane Abbott gets lost? Yeah. It's not nice. I mean, it's typical Hopkins class right there. Yeah. But yeah, can people stop being pricks? Can we book her for a show? Oh, I'd love her. I'd love her. I think we've got some questions to ask her. (laughs) She'd certainly have a lot to say. She would. Just all be racist. Anyway. And in other news, the new £10 note featuring Jane Austen has entered circulation and everyone is thrilled. Woo! Everyone. All of the thrilled to have a tenor. All of the people. Oh, oh, wait, no, no. The new tenor's release has reignited some of the misogynist furore that surrounded the campaign of Caroline Criado Perez for female representation on banknotes after the Bank of England phased out fivers featuring prison reformer Elizabeth Fry and replaced her with Winston Churchill. Uh, pretty sure the Queen's a woman, and what's a queen? A fucking penguin? bellowed the mouth breathers, infuriated that there'll now be two women and only three men across four banknotes. Fucking hell. It's a travesty, mate. Bloody women, eh? We're everywhere. Like we're half the population or something. When will the madness end? Also, just a note, sorry that Criado Perez has promised to donate her first Austin tenor to a local women's refuge, which, if you can spare it, seems like an excellent plan to us. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that part of the week where we ask blatant sexism to say cheese and then blind it with a flash of enlightenment about equality. Camera giant Nikon has been labelled sexist, and rightly so after all of the people chosen by its Asia division to promote its new flagship camera were, you guessed it, men. Nikon picked 32, and I quote, 
creative individuals. Mendividuals? Quite. To promote its new camera without a single woman among them. Is it because they only had black cameras, not pink cameras? Yes, and their nails got in the way of the buttons. Cameras are really bulky, and because I've got, like, uh, sensuous, curvaceous lady yeah. fingers... I with find boobs that just, all over them. With, with, yeah. They're just covered in tits. <laughs> they, I just find that they just... The nipples just slip yeah, right off the button. <laughs> and, like, I want to look at myself through a much more flattering lens than that's been created. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, quite, don't, don't we all? All of the ladies were busy, said Nikon. OK, oh. I'm paraphrasing. The direct quote is, Unfortunately, the female photographers we had invited for the meet were unable to attend. Presumably they were on their periods. Indeed. I don't know if you've ever tried to hold a camera on your period, but the blood makes it very slippy. It's difficult. I'm so full of rage and sadness. <laughs> yeah. I can't say how many cameras I've smashed. I have yeah. smashed at least six yeah. a month for the past 20-odd years. Oh, God, kittens! Uh, <laughs> Indeed. We acknowledged that we had not put enough focus on this area, added Nikon. No shit, Sherlock. Nikon wasn't done, though. At Nikon, we champion female photographers here in the UK, across Europe and globally, and we look to praise and elevate unique female talent whenever and wherever possible. Uh, Apart from now and when it is possible. What they've essentially done there is just like put a whole bit of Vaseline across the screen. They've put a real (laughs) soft focus on their sexism. I look really glowy in this sexism. I'm just like fucking reclining in it and loving life. Yeah, it's it's slippy, but not like period buds. At a global level, the company has four photographers acting as ambassadors for the launch of the camera, one of which is Rosita Lipari, So, you know, a one in four ratio that's absolutely reflective of the population. Hi, I'm Carrie Ed Lloyd and I'm here talking to comedian and author Sarah Pascoe. We are recording in King's Place, in King's Cross, which is why it is a bit noisy. Hello. Hi, Sarah. Um, Sarah is not only a brilliant person, brilliant comedian, she's also recently adapted Pride and Prejudice for the stage. How do you feel about that? Are you excited? Or is it scary that you wrote something and... I feel sick. In a good way, I think. Like, not because I'm sick. Like, I'm not poorly. <laughs> I feel sick because my... I've written a book and I write stand-up, which I perform myself, and which... So, obviously, they're both very, very, very uh, intensely controlled by one person. You get um, notes from an editor or... With stand-up, you obviously get kind of notes from the audience where they leave if they don't like it or, like, laugh if they do. But... they're rehearsing at the moment and I just the fact that something is happening completely outside of my control and someone else is going hmm what does this mean I'll say it like that I'm like no that's why I have been to rehearsals because my instinct is to go say exactly how I meant it would you like to play all the parts would that be the dream Oh, no, this is a real learning lesson for me, so it would be the opposite of my dream. That is my nightmare, where I become that person. Yeah. How do you think Jane Austen would feel about your adaptation? Well, this is one of the very first conversations we had. So I'm working with um, the director, Susanna, and Emmy the Great, who's doing the music, and one of the first conversations we had was about what Jane Austen would be doing now, and we imagined all of the blogs that she'd be writing, how she would be voting, what she'd be talking about current politics. It was really fun for us to imagine, like, what, what would her response to Trump be? Like, um, yes, Jane Austen is such a fascinating woman in her... Uh, her analysis of character because it's almost genderless. Everyone has exactly the same 
formats, which is they don't really see themselves how the world sees them. And then she just does this in lots and lots of different ways. Men and women are equally flawed in very different ways. We got really fascinated about that. And then so the kind of times where we have taken liberties with the play or with the characters, it was always trying to get back to a truth with her, not trying to go, oh, now we think it should be like this. We really, really, obviously lots and lots of adaptations of Pride and Prejudice, which are really brilliant and exciting, but going back to the text, there are also lots of things that have been kind of ignored, and I especially felt that the family have been, over time, made to be a lot neater and nicer and more ladylike than they should be. Like, the Bennett sisters, I kept saying, like, they're the kind of family, if they got on the train, you'd move carriages. (laughs) And I think Lydia and Kitty now would be, like, full-on selfies, hair extensions, contouring... I think the, the really exciting thing is that kind of family would be a reality TV. They could be the Kardashians, they could be made in Chelsea. So it's nice to think of them like that because it's, it's not a modern retelling, but the world is, has changed and women and their position in society has really, really changed. And the first thing I felt when I was writing was like, why do we keep telling these stories where women are still infantilised and they're saying it's romantic? It's quite dangerous to keep telling these same stories where women sit down and wait for a man to propose to them because we're saying that to a new generation of women all the time who aren't in that position. So so I did want them to be raw and wild. It's difficult, isn't it? Because Lizzie, for her time, is very brave and courageous. But there is still the element of wanting to be rescued. And she does still, spoiler alert, get the man at the end and is sort of rec- rescued by a man who's very rich. So even though for the time it's groundbreaking, yeah, if you're now producing that for a young girl now, are you still perpetuating the princess myth? We had to put a song in because I knew we needed to explain the legal position of women and the inheritance of land. Otherwise, the fact that this father is going to die and none of these people can stay living in his house anymore isn't that clear. And it's quite dry. So Emmy's written this incredibly catchy song called Don't Judge Us, which is just to explain so that you actually understand. First of all, you have to understand the financial situation so that when Lizzie's cousin proposes to her, which means that she can stay in their house and, and suddenly there will be a haven for her sisters and there will be some a small amount of an income to share. Basically, she can save all of their lives and she still turns him down. That's so huge. But if you're just reading in the story and a lot of the adaptations, he's just an annoying cousin. You're like, why'd you marry him? He's ugly. It's like, you don't understand. This is the equivalent of prison. Like, when Charlotte decides to marry him. Rereading it now, I thought her story was heartbreaking. Yeah. It's, it's one st- step away from sex work, essentially. She has to... <laughs> You're right, but it's just funny because Charlotte Lucas is normally treated amongst Austin enthusiasts <laughs> um, as, like, like put-upon cousin who kind of marries for the sake of it. But I think if you do read the books, I think Lizzie feels the way you feel about Charlotte. Like, Lizzie it cannot believe that Charlotte has decided to marry this person. And also, let's talk about the comedy. Because, because people asked when they were like, oh, have you always loved Pride and Prejudice? And obviously, you and I, uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> uh, did an English degree together at Sussex. With Jen from Standard Issue, who's also sat next to us recording it. So, hi. <laughs> and I didn't read anything pre-1960s post-17th century. I had this huge gap where I was like, ugh, Victorian, stay away. And obviously Jane Austen is not Victorian, but um, there was a whole period where I just thought, I just had a really terrible assumption that I was never going to read Dickens, I was never going to read Austen, they were just all descriptions of flowers, shut up. And then, so then when I was reading for pleasure after university, and I think, I think poverty was the reason I picked up Pride and Prejudice because it's a pound. The classics were a pound, and so you could buy five books in W.H. Smith's, or no books, <laughs> half a magazine. And, that, and then the second I started it, it was so easy to read and lovely and clear, and you don't associate that with work that's hundreds of years old. And that's why 
it's really exciting to be looking at an adaptation because like we've got like A-level students or GCSE students who are studying it on the syllabus and so isn't it fun when it's not a book you hate and they said it's funny like I'm the first time I read Pride and Prejudice I remember reading it going this is hilarious but how do you feel approaching it as a comedian like were you impressed with her comedy writing yeah so and I also I knew the reason that the theatre had approached me to they wanted a comedian to write a new version and so I absolutely knew that the pinnacle of it was comedy so my first rereading I was just underlining jokes and elements that I knew how to go into the script that was my first thing was what are we literally lifting from her own words sometimes it's Narration, so you have to go well, whose mouth is this going into, or how else do you tell it? Obviously, it's completely different prose to dialogue. But the first thing was, oh, it has to be really, really, really funny because that's the point, and also it's what makes it a bearable book. Like the minute you take the jokes out, it's such a boring story. <laughs> tell the story with no jokes. Once upon a time, a really sad poor family <laughs> can't do anything because the world is awful. Their mother would marry them to anyone. It doesn't matter whether they want to or not. What, you don't want a joke to lighten the tone. <laughs> Do you, do you feel intimidated by her comedy? Or did you think, like, did you feel like you were talking to another comedian? You were like, yeah, I get you. No, that would be incredibly arrogant. <laughs> I wasn't like, I was just me and Jane Austen in the green room going, how are you going to riff this? Um, what's really great is having written stuff purely from scratch. It's so wonderful to know what's going to happen to all of the characters. It's a ve- adapting something is completely different. But the intimidation is worrying. Everyone has an attachment to Jane Austen. There'll be a small percentage of people who come to see the play who think they don't like it. And we wrote that in our blurb on purpose to hopefully entice people to come in if whether they've had a bad experience or it was taught badly or they read a book when they were really young or something. But most people come already knowing their favourite characters and their favourite bits and why they think it's a lovely love story. And it's about those people that I felt from the beginning, it took me ages to start properly writing because I was just heckling myself with imaginary 50-year-old women who know a lot more than I do about Jane Austen going, actually, and actually it's been quite funny, uh, through the publication of the book and the rehearsals, I've done so many historical inaccuracies. The crossword wasn't invented. Munched Jack Deer were not yet in the UK. Like all of these things you just wouldn't, I wouldn't even know. I just assumed Munch Jack were British Deer. No. And <laughs> um, invaders, what they called immigrants. <laughs> <laughs> we have that with ostentatious. So obviously I do an improvised Jane Austen show and we have to have regular meetings where we have to remind each other what's not invented because it wasn't I wasn't trying to be absolutely historically accurate I'm being slightly not lazy I wanted to I wanted to write because it was jokes and truth for me because also I thought who will know apart from one (laughs) dweeb who I'll beat up afterwards (laughs) I read Sarah's adaptation it's very good but you have done slight meta thing with it so we sort of see the actors as well so why did you want to kind of break down so it's not you know it's not a traditional the ladies we just see the linear story we're also sort of seeing the background of we're also seeing the background of this story being told why did you want to tell two stories partly it's because time wise you sometimes really need to jump forward and flicking forward to certain other scenes b or c plots for instance means that you can jump But more importantly, there are real things historically that if they are not explained, you know, we retell the same stories again and again, but this story is about a time in history where women have no power. And unless you have a modern voice to comment on that, I felt I was screaming at the play. I felt, I felt, unless like you had a modern woman questioning, and the reason that actors are interesting is because they have to find love for these characters or why they made certain decisions on, or why they don't speak, why they don't express themselves. So this is a, there, there is a very, very integral story which involves no one saying anything. And, and because if you do, then you're engaged to somebody. And um, if you don't comment on that, I thought, how can you love that character now? I was thinking what's unfair is without any kind of modern commentary, 
without an explanation of how we're all formed by culture and and the expectations upon her, she's just an insipid woman, and she wasn't an insipid woman. Like there's a there's a thing about properness that was in, uh, imp- oppressive. Like so with the school children, kind of asking why is she just walking around? Why aren't they trying to get the vote or something? Because uh, because sometimes that's what I was thinking of like. We love this story, but do we love it because we're romanticising a time where we would just have been darning? Well, it's the other big thing that Austin academics have a problem with. Like, this is the big time of slavery, and she mentions it once and hardly mentions it. Yeah, and and doesn't really talk about servants and talks nothing about war. So, because that very reason... I got a character mentioning the war quite near the beginning because there's soldiers everywhere. <laughs> like, and so when I reread it again, so lots of things. That, so first of all, it was the role of women. The second one was class issue in this play. We decided to cast ours just with no awareness of race because I went through the book and she doesn't mention race once. Was like, well, anyone could be whatever colour I want. And she never ever says this family are, are white, and anyone else is white. So I felt very okay about doing that. And we wanted to have a like a really diverse casting. So we wanted to pick the right people. And it's really funny because that's what some people have been affronted about about our advertising. Really? So because it's a diverse cast, that's bothering them. I'm already going. I already know this is a terrible production because they don't look right. See, that is the Disneyfication almost. I know they haven't done that at Disney Pride and Prejudice, but because there have only been white productions of Pride and Prejudice, that's terrible. So, but it's also the problem in terms of actors coming through now. We don't change the... We either change the way that we're doing plays or the kind of plays we're doing. Because if you think about... Audiences come out to see old things they already like, so they're always putting those things on. And then they either have a... It's just such a strange thing it must be for an actor if you're not white. It's hard, like, being a female actor... Yeah is hard enough like the parts like you know say you do Shakespeare your, your roles are limited compared to a man but then not being being a non-white actor woman then you're just completely writing them out so when you are cast as Cleopatra suddenly it's a statement rather than acting I'm pretending to be someone else are they complaining because it's not like it's not a white Lizzie Bennet wow I find that very shocking that that's what is bothering people but surprised you're surprised though to be honest because we'll look at like the whole black James Bond thing like Idris Elba can't be Bond because that's James Bond like I know what you mean again it's us it's us profiling you think James Bond is everyone's thing so I can understand a really Id- a really idiot person thinking that but you do think oh the theatre they're so edgy. like a theatre going audience there's been a lot of Jane Austen adaptations <laughs> One of my faves, 1995 PMP, Colin Firth. I think it's the greatest adaptation, so I'm yes. I'm going to watch your play with that in mind. How do you feel about? Because you hadn't watched it when it came out, did you? No. I watched it obsessively, hence why I'm in Ostentatious, because that's I literally wanted to be in that show. So when you watched it for the first time years later, we how did you feel watching what is held by most people as like a classic adaptation? It's it's got such again it's a really really brilliant script they had it's really really long obviously so they got to do everything that's in the book with some really amazing casting and I think Colin Firth is such a big part of that Darcy on the page is not Colin Firth in a leg <laughs> watching it were you surprised at, at people hailing that as like the, a great adaptation no not at all again because I think they make the characters really likable and the world is really luscious it makes it romantic it's, it's, it's romantic for a different time not a time you would necessarily want to live but you want to kind of try on for a bit um, I think they do I think the PMP 995 they do Lydia's running off with Wickham very well I feel like you feel very like villainous and you're like oh. Lydia and Kitty actually but all the sisters but she's sexual and, and she's a she's a teenage girl and, and I think her mother was and that's how she snared Mr. Bennett um, yeah because that's the whole thing is yeah red, red, red heart and again this is where it's very interesting 
I, I think trying to talk about whether Jane Austen is a feminist or not is kind of a waste of time because it didn't exist as a thing then. But I think what's really interesting is that, and I think it's why people get really excited about her over and over again, is, oh my God, the female, the women have autonomy. Even in that time that she was formed by, she's still writing women where, no, the young girl is not just always the person being seduced and manipulated. Sometimes she's the seducer and manipulator, and that's massive. You're a family of sisters. Did you relate to the Bennett sisters? Did you look at them and go, I understand what's happening here? Yeah, definitely. Like, um, and the dedication for the publication, I've made it just to Cheryl. <laughs> well, I've got two sisters, Cheryl and Christina, and so, but a mum as well who's very young, so having when she was 19, so we were a young female family. My mum was the exact opposite of Mrs. Burnett. I think that's why I'm fascinated with the economic thing, because I, on wrote, my mum's whole thing was you have to be able to look after yourself. You don't rely on anyone, and you especially don't rely on a man because you love him. Like her whole thing was like that, that, that. If you do that, if you trust it, as much as you want, if you shoot, it goes. You have to look after yourself. Mrs. Bennett needed your mum around. A lot of women going on in the Pasco clan, isn't there? Yeah, loads. So, Sarah, where can we see your adaptation of Pride and Prejudice? Um, so, if people want to come and see it, it's on the Nottingham Playhouse uh, for three weeks, and then it's on at the York Theatre Royal for three weeks. Um, so, it'll be through September to November, and um, then hopefully more productions next year. Fingers crossed. And you can, it, the script's been published, so you can read your adaptation as well. Yes, you can buy it um, via my website. So I'll just link to it on there. Oh, I'll, do, okay. I'll do a page. But it's um, published by Samuel French, and it'll be on Amazon. Thank you, Sarah. I've been Carrie Lloyd. If you do like Jane Austen, you can also come and see my show, Ostentatious, the improvised Jane Austen novel, which is doing a UK tour this autumn and winter, and we're also performing shows in London. If you want more information, go to ostentatiousimpro.com or follow us on Twitter at Austin Impro. You are listening to Leanne Davis on this here podcast, and today I'm talking about Alzheimer's, which is the subject of my new blog series based on losing my own gorgeous mum Eunice to early onset dementia, entitled Keeping My Head Whilst Mum's Losing Hers. However, if the scary word Alzheimer's already has you reaching for the skip button, replace this word in your head with another, maybe, I don't know, adventuring or apple bobbing or, well, anything really as the point of this recording is to try and ease some of the pressure we feel when speaking about this illness. Because once we've done that, then we remove some of the shame and stigma surrounding mental health issues such as Alzheimer's. And then we not only move forward in hopefully being able to find a cure for this disease, but also help ease the pain both to Alzheimer's sufferers and their loved ones. I need to point out at this juncture that I am neither a medical professional nor mental health expert, much to my parents' disappointment and that the situations I describe are of dealing with my own mother. I appreciate there are many different ways of experiencing this illness, and my advice may not be applicable to everyone's situation. I am simply a 34-year-old writer, actor, and occasional titter-inducer, who has spent the last seven years searching for ways to deal with my mum's complex illness, means of coping better with the losses and heartbreak, and skills to be able to laugh through the dark times, and thus not feel so alone and shitty. Because, let's call a spade a spade, this is a shitter of a disease. But there are ways we can make it a little bit easier. I'm also a little nervous about discussing things about this disease, in case it upsets people who aren't quite as far down the grieving and subsequent healing process that I am, especially if you're suffering from the disease yourself. But one of maybe my only regrets in this whole situation is that I didn't speak directly to Mum about it at the time when she still could. I didn't want to make it worse for her, as she wasn't prepared to admit it herself, so we all lived in denial. 
but I realise now that this may have made her feel more alone. So if I can get even one family talking and bring them together, then at least I'll have appeased some of my chronic Catholic guilt. Something I can roundly thank my dear mother for. (laughs) However, please note, I may discuss elements of the disease which you're still not ready to hear. So if you want to know the good bits but not the bad, perhaps ask a dear pal to listen for you and pick out the key points. I have never watched Still Alice and I doubt I ever will. I know it's a great film, but it's too freaking sad, too close to home, so I get it. I was 28 when Mum was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's, but it wasn't till at least 18 months later that I actually found the courage to tell anyone, bar my chocolate fire guard boyfriend at the time. In all honesty, I was terrified, as I didn't know what it, Alzheimer's, actually meant. The only experience I'd had of what I thought was Alzheimer's was from watching films seeing actresses play dithering old ladies, sweetly forgetting the names of their grandchildren. It seemed like a natural part of the ageing process. But my mum was neither dithering nor old, and I'd never heard of anyone at either my age, 28, nor my mother's, 65, having been diagnosed with this disease. I was a very immature 28-year-old, and up until that point, mum had been my sage and spirit guide. I couldn't bear the thought of losing that. This felt like an illness that a parent should only be allowed to get when you're all grown up, totally together and blissfully married with four beautiful children and a picket fence and maybe a golden retriever or two should you prove yourself responsible enough. I wasn't anywhere near any of that. I didn't even own a colander. Seven years on and I'm here today recording a podcast to be shared, potentially on a global scale, that's what I've told my dad, (laughs) or certainly big enough to reach my hometown of Darlington, putting my innermost thoughts out here to be heard and felt. If I use the wrong terminology or offend, please forgive me. I don't by any means have all the answers, as ultimately, I'm just a girl standing in front of her mum, asking her to remember that she loves her. There are so many different ways this illness presents itself, and many situations are far worse than our experience, so please note that some of this advice is easier said than done. So, here with four of the main ways I found that helped me cope with the pain of Alzheimer's, my experience of losing my own mother, the beautiful, the talented, the hilarious Eunice Davis. Advice, part one. Allow yourself to really cry, ideally to the point where it feels like your brains might pop out. To those that love a good cry, this may seem like the easy part. But having been a very healthy crier my whole life, my family can vouch for this, I could bore with tears of happiness through an entire episode of You Bet, I found that my 18 months of denial dried up my tear ducts like putting salt on a slug. It was only when I started seeing a counsellor that the Red Seas came together again and I cried so hard I thought my brains might well pop out. The defining moment was during the first session when I explained that I had this constant burning sensation in my chest but I didn't know why I felt so bad given that mum was actually still alive. My counsellor explained gently that this sensation was grief. Boy was knowing that a relief. Of course now it seems so easy to understand but... As Alzheimer's is a disease we rarely speak about, though that is getting better, I couldn't put my feelings into context. It felt so odd, and in some ways still does, to grieve a person who is still here. It was a very conflicting time for me. I was scared, confused, and so bloody angry. It felt so unfair that this was happening to my mum at such a young age. Though... Now I realise that everyone feels that way about losing a parent or loved one, no matter how old you are. Advice part two. Speak to someone, ideally a professional. Good old Prince Harry, hey? Stud. 
By the way, how much do I love the pairing of him and suits Meghan Markle, though I do keep getting her confused with the German Chancellor. Prince Harry has, I think, eased a path for both men and women by speaking publicly about his own grief over losing his mum, Diana, and finally finding the courage to see a counsellor. In my mind, it highlighted what I already knew, that no matter how rich, physically strong, or that non-meaning word, manly, you are, mental struggles are exactly the same as physical struggles. A sprained ankle is a sprained ankle. A sprained brain is a sprained brain. I started seeing a counsellor to find ways of coping with my mum's illness and actually just cured a load of other problems along the way, including dumping the chocolate fireguard boyfriend for one, which was a win. Bloody love multitasking. From the very first session with this woman, I wondered why counselling wasn't included in the school curriculum. Why working on tools that help individuals deal with all life's problems wasn't a standard part of education like reading and writing. I came out of school a year early at 17 with five A-levels, a gold Duke of Edinburgh award, and pretty much zero skills for dealing with grief, loss, shame, insecurity. And thus, life in my 20s, even with all my academic qualifications, was a constant struggle. The person I most wanted to speak to about all this was mum. She'd been my best friend my entire life, my counsel. But as previously mentioned, I didn't want to make her feel worse by bawling my eyes out in front of her. So speaking to someone impartial allowed me to do that and to express all the feelings I was too embarrassed or ashamed to share with her, other loved ones or friends. And an illness like Alzheimer's brings up a whole host of shameful feelings. What we should have done, what we ought to feel, thoughts we don't want to think but are always there niggling away. It's only by dealing with these feelings that we can start to process our pain and move through it. Advice part three. Don't be too proud to ask for help and give help where you can. The weird crappy shame surrounding this illness can really make you cut off from people. At first, um, the first few years after diagnosis, I saw my mum withdraw, scared of what she might do or say. As a result, we as a family withdrew ourselves as our love for and pride in mum meant that we didn't want to upset her or bring unnecessary attention or cause her additional distress. But that meant that for a long time, we lived in secret shame, pretending nothing was wrong. And until you admit there's a problem, it's very hard to find solutions and ways of coping. If you know someone who's grieving or dealing with Alzheimer's, try to reach out. Even if they have rejected you a million times, and unless it's because you are actually a total pillock, try at least once more. Alzheimer's and all that comes with it, especially whilst there is this stigma and fear surrounding it, can be a really lonely place. Advice part four. Let go and stop giving a damn. This is so much easier once parts one and three are in place. The thing I didn't realise about Alzheimer's when one was first diagnosed is that over time, it changes the person's entire personality. I knew about the decline of memory and ultimately that's what I grieved most at the beginning. I was terrified about her not remembering me, something we are dangerously close to now. What I wasn't prepared for was the total shift in behaviour, her loss of manners, shouting in public and acting irrationally. There are so many ways the illness manifests itself and at first I was mortified. Until recently, Mum looked like a normal, fully functioning adult. So when she did crass things like shout across the bar, Oi lad, I want to drink! Which is simply cutting to the chase, if you ask me. Or wildly picking her nose at the table, people would look over and judge. Interestingly, as Mum's condition has deteriorated, we as a family have grown stronger, more resilient to looks and stares. I didn't want to tell people at the start that mum had Alzheimer's. 
I didn't want to feel I was shaming her by telling strangers her secret. But it's the weird shame surrounding this illness that forced this to be a secret in the first place. It never was my mum who was acting strangely. It is the disease. Now, when we go to restaurants with mum, we quietly explain to waiters and bar staff that she has Alzheimer's and there is never anything other than a positive reaction to this. So, let go and stop caring. And if you see someone acting strangely or aggressively, how this disease often shows itself, don't automatically judge. Try to be caring. Give people the benefit of the doubt. You never know whether some illness or other pain might be playing a part in a person's seemingly odd behaviour. Do as you would be done by, as my mum always asserted. And if those people are completely healthy but just absolute twerps, well, they're suffering enough as it is. And so, to my final piece of advice. Be present and enjoy the now. I spent so much time grieving mum in the first years after diagnosis that sometimes I felt like she'd already gone. At times I'd gotten myself so wrapped up in sadness that I'd convinced myself she was worse than she actually was. To be honest, it was also hard to know how she truly was, as every day was different and I sort of had nothing to compare against. When people asked, how's your mum? I never really knew what to answer. So I used to say, well, she still remembers me. And that seemed to satisfy the question. Changes were often subtle, a feeling she was slipping away, but I couldn't be specific without a ten-minute rundown. Towards the later stages, where she is now, changes are more profound, but weirdly I tend to find them easier to accept. I came to learn that the now is all we have. With this illness, things do go up and down. Some days you feel you've almost lost them entirely, and others, they are lucid again, surprising us with great feats of memory. My mum was, and still is, the most resilient woman the most courageous fighter, and her enormous strength and gargantuan heart has meant that even through all of this, her beauty and love still pours out of her. She's so happy and joyous, and she brings delight to all who meet her. We are so fortunate in that respect, as mum is still really happy. Occasionally, when I'm at home with her, I lie upon her like a child, holding her hand and kissing her face. I know that for a short moment she knows my importance to her, not necessarily my name or how I relate to her, just that she loves me in the way only a mother can. Dearly, deeply and without reproach for being 34 and lying on her like a much less weighty three-year-old. These moments you will only get if you allow yourself to be in the moment and they will stay in your heart forever. I, like many people, thought dementia and memory loss were a natural part of the ageing process. But Alzheimer's is a disease and the biggest cause of dementia the good news about this is, like other diseases such as AIDS and cancer, one day we will defeat it. So let's start talking about it, discuss it in the office, open the conversations around Alzheimer's, destroy shame surrounding mental illness and find a cure for this shitty disease. Search Alzheimer's Research UK for further information on this. I'm joined by music guru, queen of Ace Records, and our very own Seven Wonders champion, Liz Buckley. She's here to talk Debbie, Harry and Blondie. We'll get to Liz in a moment, but just a little info on Debbie, Harry. 42 years after Blondie found fame on the New York scene, Debbie, Harry is still championing women in the music business. And 
being one of the best preserved septuagenarians. I can't say that word, septuagenarian. Is that right? Is she 70? She's 71, mate. 71. And she's about to go on tour. So she's touring later in the year and she's taking the band because she's nice like that. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's November. They're going on tour in November. Hi, yeah. Liz. Hello there. Hi. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Thanks for nice joining us. It's lovely to have you. <laughs> so, Debbie Harrier, have you ever met anyone who doesn't think she's bloody marvellous? Well, they'd have difficulty explaining why. I think it's a lot easier to say how brilliant she is than how rubbish she is. <laughs> the main thing about her legacy is that she was the first woman to front a band and to be all on her own terms. You look at people like Marion Faithful or Sandy Shaw, or you know, they're pop poppets, puppets, mm-hmm. poppets, whatever you like. You know, poppets. I like it. It's a great portmanteau. <laughs> well done. Pop it on a string, even. You know, you've got Svengali managers behind them. So even someone like Joan Jett, who you know is a contemporary of Debbie, she's still got Kim Fowley as a Svengali manager behind her. You know, why don't you wear your lingerie on stage? Yeah. Debbie was her own woman, and she was sort of the first person to have. You know, the band worrying about being the bimbos. Blondie are the first band where the men are going, we can play our instruments, by the way, you know, actually defending themselves. They actually had a badge campaign, Blondie is a group. That was an actual thing. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> That's, but it, when you think Blondie, you think Debbie Harry. Of course, yeah. of course, yeah. All Blondie lives matter. Hashtag. <laughs> well, I mean, she was the blonde one, right? <laughs> Did any of the others have blonde hair? Mainly black hair, but obviously she had two-tone and that was her thing as well. So, you know, to actually, you know, she's she's nodding to the sort of American beauty Marilyn Monroe types, but she's actually accentuating having roots and doing it, her hair herself and everything. Mm-hmm. So, blonde, actually being called Blondie was uh, her trying to repossess catcalling. So, you know, she'd be walking down the street and somebody go, Oi, Blondie! And she'd be like, I, OK, I'll call myself Blondie and <laughs> you come here and say that to me. That's amazing. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So what about musically? Well, lyrically, I think she's hugely underrated, actually. I mean, you sort of think, like, she's coming from the same place that people like Tom Waits were, where, you know, he's considered a poet. He's have poetry books, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, he's talking about the same sort of grubby New York that Debbie Harry is. And she's got an amazing way with words, but people really gloss over the stuff that she said because she's busy there with her lip gloss and they're watching her lip sync, but they're not actually really paying that much attention to them. There's a story about... Um, her and uh, Chris Stein. Chris Stein was sort of like the, her partner in Blondie. And he all, took and loads things. of the photos, didn't he? Yeah. The iconic photos. Yeah, which is another way that stops people kind of uh, objectifying her, I think. You know, her own boyfriend is taking the photos. Uh-huh. So people yeah. kind of seeing her as a pin-up. It's like, well, she's not yours. She's not even looking at you. <laughs> That's true. She's, she's genuinely looking at the photographer. Yeah, she's taken. She and does she not want to, to touch your bits. No. Or, no. <laughs> she's singing a Chris the whole time. <laughs> There's a story about her and Chris being in the Hard Rock Cafe and they've got blondie lyrics on the wall for one way or another. And the lyrics are wrong. They were faked. Because people don't necessarily listen to what Debbie's singing, they're just like, oh, yeah, that looks like Debbie's handwriting. And she's like, wait, there's no mention of rat food in that line. And rat food is very important because one way or another is about a stalker and she's getting her own back on a stalker. So her lyrics are very important in terms of her sexuality, but again, people don't really seem to listen to her. So, I, you know, I did not know that. Well, the whole thing about uh, I'm going to get you, get you, get you, you know, it's sort of like this uh, strong sexuality of hers, but it was also what somebody was saying to her, one way or another, I'm going to get you. So she was like, I'm going to turn that back on them and I'm going to use it as an empowering thing. So the rat food that isn't in the lyrics on the Hard Rock Cafe <laughs> is very important, you know. She does that an awful lot, so... So 
hanging on the telephone, I'm in the phone booth across the hall. If you don't answer, I'll ring it off the wall. You know, there's a woman who's very much in charge. And picture this, I'll give you my finest hour, the one I spent watching you in the shower. <laughs> she's, she's in charge. Yeah. One of the things I take from Blondie, from Debbie Harry, is that she was very much feminist and very much her own agent. But she was also this sex goddess and that's almost what they sold her as this sort of sex goddess like you said people weren't necessarily listening to the lyrics they were looking at her lips because they're all shiny and she's Mm. got fucking cheekbones you could you know (laughs) eat your dinner off and this amazing figure but I always thought she was never doing that for anyone else she was always doing it for herself absolutely yeah and you've got to remember that in the context of the time she was considered very unladylike really yeah absolutely so you know her windmill dancing on stage and stuff was not considered the attractive thing for you know I really want you to windmill (laughs) I was about to it's too small but you know she was sort of as being very very ballsy her approach you know sort of the way she sang the whole sort of snarling thing the way that her lips would sort of go wonky while she was singing so she'd start off with this sort of beautiful ethereal high-pitched voice but actually her lips would go sort of sideways so she was taking a piss out of you watching her really Uh so you think this is attractive do you i mean you know can't forget this was part of the punk ethic so she's not just a pretty little poppet on a string (laughs) absolutely not and it's that whole thing you said the word the key word i think when talking about blondie and certainly debbie harry is punk Mm. they were sort of sold as a pop act but the punk ethos underlines everything they did she was rebellious she you know she didn't conform to expectations and therefore she took her band with her she was punk all in capital letters there's a really interesting documentary it's called once upon a time in new york and it's about 1970s new york and how terribly run down it was some areas more than others but those areas generally you know in manhattan were the areas that artists and things tend to congregate uh-huh. um and in, in the bronx which when you look at photographs what the bronx looked like at that point in, it was just it's unrecognizable it, it, well, it looks now like a, it looked like it, it had come for a war mm. i mean there were just abandoned buildings and half falling down buildings anyway and it's about how this time and place spawned three new musical movements that all came out of new york at that time punk um which patty smith it always says that the problem with gentrifying New York is that you have killed the New York <laughs> yeah. music scene. Yeah, uh, Disco, which also arrived and largely in the gay community at that point, and hip-hop, which grew out of the, the Bronx. And that what Debbie Harris in particular managed to achieve there was to combine all three together yeah, absolutely. and absolutely, actually yeah. make it a saleable product. Well, they? I mean, they actually did a goodbye gig at CBGB's because they were seen as punk traitors. So when they did Heart of Glass, it was considered such a traitorous move. Because it was so disco. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're kind of channeling Donna Summer and Georgia Moroder. And they actually said that Kraftwerk was their influence, which is a bit cooler. But then Tide is High is reggae. Call Me is total rock and roll. You know, they were actually all over the place. Um, You know, every genre that you could think of. Well, Rapture, rap, you know. Can I do my one fact? My (laughs) big fact about Debbie Harry is that she is listed in the US as the first woman to be number one as a rapper because of the rapture. I think well, she might be the first person. She, she's and the first rapper on MTV as well. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> she's also the first woman to have uh, right three UK number ones. Parallel Lines is amazing. My, my granddad had, um, when he died, he had an eight track, which we took because we were like, oh, wow, let's have this. Do you have anything to play it on? No, no, no. We have the eight track player. Oh, right. But okay, he so. only had three actual cartridges for uh-huh. the eight track and he had two different 
Best of Johnny Cash and of a copy of Parallel Lines. Wow. That was all he had on 8-track. Genuinely, when I was little, I wanted to grow up to be Debbie Harry. How's that working out for you, mate? Um, it's what well, she's she's not given she's it's like Prince Charles and the Queen she's not relinquishing the position at all <laughs> she's true. continuing to be Debbie off, Harry off air though Hannah does insist that we call her Debbie yeah <laughs> yeah definitely M- sorry Miss Harry when when Ma- Maria yeah yeah Maria. when that came out of literally <laughs> and everyone had a little oh, blondie coming back and there had been a period in which everybody was doing a comeback and you're like oh god not another one this will also be shit. And it's great. Yeah. It's a great of, track. I actually think it's shit, personally. But <laughs> get no, out. Sorry, I just I I don't like it compared to their other stuff. But they did kind of predate that sort of that thing where everyone just went, "Oh, we're going to reform. Oh, we're going to reform." They were kind of like at the beginning bit of that before you were just like, "Fuck off, you, Robbie Williams. We've had enough." You know. I if you we, have yeah. like, but if you then just produce something like you used to produce, then you just get accused of. You know, you're just like Oasis, just turning the same stuff out forever, yeah. forever, forever. Uh, you have dear to Oasis fans, really please don't tweet us. <laughs> <laughs> you can't really say what Blondie ever were to return to it, though. Like we were saying, you know, they've done reggae, rap, disco, rock. You know, you can't say this is completely in style. Maria, I thought, was a very good comeback single. You know, it, it's it's sounds like them as much as they've ever got a sound. And I guess when we were chatting earlier before we started recording, the person that is similar to that, certainly the female artist or the two female artists that are kind of similar to Blondie, and by Blondie I am talking about Debbie Harry, is Madonna. And we were saying in the mm. room probably Jen's the Madonna fan, but I can absolutely respect the what she's done. earlier stuff. Yeah, earlier like stuff. Add. But that reinvention, that yeah. never sitting still. Yeah, that, and I think the fierceness that's, as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's the thing she's done really well. And actually, you sort of said before, uh, I don't, I wouldn't really put her in the same bracket as Debbie Harry because she can't sing. But um, but Kylie Minogue also reinvents herself very well. Gargoyle's a bit more of a Debbie Harry derivative, oh, I love you know, in, the, in, in a positive way. In fact, Debbie Harry was saying not that long ago that she was really excited by Lady Gaga, but she sees her as something else because Debbie Harry's actually quite, um, you know, when when she turns off, she turns off. When she's her own person, mm. she's private. Yeah. So like Blondie, actually, I think they split up in eighty two, eighty three, something like that. Because Chris Stein, who wasn't mentioned, was ill, <laughs> and she 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 looked after him, and they just quit Blondie. Well, you know, as a couple, they recuperated and took the time they needed. But you know, she's obviously not Lady Gaga in that she's like, I need to be out there, my public, all that sort of thing. Yeah. So. Actually, you know who is a bit like her in that in that sense, and partly in a bit like her that in that you can never sing along. The something about the way they sing that makes it impossible for Kate you to sing, sing along. No, I was going to say Florence Welsh. All right, yeah, yeah, sure. Because she's become, I mean, who, who are the machine? <laughs> who are they? Is it a machine? Really? That sort of sleeper bloke thing of like, the yeah. boys behind are actually anonymous. I think also as well, there is, that, that is the, the, the kind of weird, tortured joy of Blondie is that you yeah. can only sing along by yourself because you <laughs> cannot, yeah, you cannot, <laughs> you can't sing that. <laughs> Well, her producer for um, Parallel Lines, Mick Chapman, he said when she started singing Heart of Glass, he was just like, whoa, why are you starting up there? You know, no one was expecting it. And that song did exist. It was kind of a funk record. And then they decided to do it as disco to rescue it because they'd run out of songs for the record. So we're like, well, we've got this. It's a bit crap. We don't really know what to do with it. And then they made it disco. And that, that was the sort of angle. All of them claimed responsibility and the kudos for doing that. But, you know, when she started singing up there, everyone was just like, Oh shit! What's she doing? And that really stuck because everyone was like, "Oh, it's breathy and it's sexy." And what is that? You know. 
and it's much better to snarl with when you're up there being cutesy. Yeah, exactly how I just did it. I think <laughs> it was uncanny. I felt like she was in the room. Yeah. <laughs> it was really weird. Yeah. I think the other thing about Debbie Harry that I really like is obviously she was a massive pinup. She had a sweet face, but a smart mouth. Absolutely. She was gobby as fuck, and I respect that, oddly. Who'd have thought, hey? Um, (laughs) But she was sort of fearless about putting herself out there. Well, this relates to what Hannah was saying, actually, about how rough New York was in the Bronx and stuff. I mean, it was quite important that she looked like she could punch you. Because, you know, coming out of CBGBs at two in the morning, if you're wearing a miniskirt, you've got to be able to look after yourself. Ladies got balls. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. she's still got them now. So yeah. we're talking about why she's enduring. She's yeah. so, in her 70s, she's got a new album out. Sorry, Blondie have got a new album out. <laughs> well, and also, you know, she does stuff that... You know, she's on the new Future Islands album. She's got Johnny Marr writing. She's got Charlie XCX writing for her. You know, she keeps relevant. She's interested in other people. She's interested in other writers. When I came back, I came back from a holiday this year. I've flown back from America. I had to drive uh, home from the airport and I hit the M25 and it's like the worst traffic ever. And at this point, I've been up for about 36 hours. It's red hot and I'm in a car and I put the radio on and Ken Bruce was interviewing Chris Stein. And ah. just say him first, and Debbie <laughs> Harry. And I was like, I can actually sit in this traffic. I didn't move for about an hour and a half. Just did not move, sitting on it. And I was having a lovely time. And in a way, Blondie reminded me of ABBA in the sense of, you're like, oh, once they've played their four or five big tracks, then maybe you're... But it's not. Every time they put another record on, yeah, you're yeah. another... That's also fucking brilliant. That's yeah, also... Yeah. Brilliant. I don't necessarily feel that way about ABBA, but certainly yeah, sure. you could you could name thirty or forty. Well, there was there was a half BBC decent. documentary recently about well, recently. God, I'm showing my age. That's probably about five years ago. But <laughs> they were talking about how Parallel Lines was like their seminal album, and it was all downhill after that. And then you look at what was on the albums after that. And it's like Atomic and yeah. you know Tide Is High and stuff. And there's no way that they just kind of petered out. Yeah. But I mean, it's that diversity, the fact that they kind of magpied what was going on around mm, absolutely, them yeah. and put it out there. My Similar sort of, sort of like a Warhol kind of thing. That's what they did. They had so many influences. Wasn't like Debbie Harry slash Bondi is Warhol's favourite Yeah, mm, yeah, she was um, a muse. Yeah. What I love about this is Debbie Harry had a, a picture of herself on her T-shirt. And she was her own muse. So I'm going to ask you one last question. Mm. If there is someone out there who has somehow never heard of Blondie slash Debbie Harry, how would you describe them and what would you say was a good in? What's your gateway Blondie tune? <laughs> gateway Blondie. I'm in the farmer. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah is my gateway Blondie. <laughs> I would hit them with my cat fact. <laughs> and, I mean, there's no other, there's no better way to introduce someone to something than hitting them with a cat fact. <laughs> That's, that's can you my best way of explaining facts? anything to people. <laughs> How does it relate to cats? Sunday girl, cold as ice cream, but uh, still sweet. You know, that's that's about a cat. <laughs> so the Sunday girl thing about, you know, that's Debbie Harry in a nutshell being sort of snarly and cold. That was her describing her cat. So every song that she did, everybody always kind of applied what they thought she was. So like we were talking about one way or another, they thought that was her being yeah. aggressive. She's actually trying to own being stalked and hanging on the telephone or whatever she's she's predatory and she's describing things she sees and nothing is as it seems so that would be the way i would get somebody to listen to debbie harry she's not what you think she is just from a poster she's a lot more than that
Where can we hear some of your music picks on vinyl records? <laughs> well, uh, or eight track. <laughs> I'm a compiler and manager at Ace Records, so we put out lots of stuff that I work on and that uh, some very clever people also work on with me. So have a look at the Ace Records website, and there's lots of stuff there. Thanks very much. I'd also recommend people go on to our website, which is an archive now, standardissuemagazine.com, and put in Liz's name into the search engine because Liz used to write loads of our Seven Wonders, which was our fortnightly playlist. And there are some absolute corkers there, some of them focusing on women, some of them just focusing on brilliant music. I would also go to our Spotify account because we'll put up the Seven Wonders of our favourite Blondie tracks on nice. there. That's yeah. brilliant. Hannah just had that idea for yeah. Let's do it. I know, spontaneous. <laughs> but also, all of Liz's playlists and all of the other standard issue playlists are available on Spotify. <laughs> and in the interest of bringing this interview to a close, Liz, I'd like to say we're very near a cat that's got a collar on it. Uh, uh. Question and not answering that. Hello, this is Sarah Milliken, and you are listening to Sarah Milliken's Question Time. Uh, I'm out walking the dog, so there is a lot of extra noise. I appear to have walked the dog under a flight path beside a busy road in amongst some kind of, I was going to say, beside some kind of a special effect CD of birds, but they're just birds, aren't they? Oh, no. I'm not very good in nature, but hey, the dog needs a shit, guys. What am I to do? <laughs> it, it has to happen. So thank you so much for your questions this week. They've been excellent as ever. I'm going to jump straight in. Um, the first one is off um, Dr. G, uh, which I really, I do genuinely hope you are an actual doctor and not Dr. Fox kind of doctor. Uh, but Dr. G says, asks on Twitter, my son's giraffe is stuck on the roof. Is a broom the correct retrieval implement? I rather think that this question maybe needed was a bit more urgent maybe needed to be answered immediately as it was posted and I don't know how long I mean is the giraffe still alive why have you got a giraffe uh, so many questions Dr G I'm assuming it's a cuddly toy and if it's a cuddly toy then the only urgency is that your child might have screamed the place down for days on end until I bothered my ass to get round to answering this question so apologies for that but hey maybe you don't have kids if you don't like screaming uh, that's my advice um I think a broom is probably a good thing. Have you got a ladder? How high is the roof? Oh my god, I feel like this maybe this needs to be this needs to be answered privately. <laughs> maybe I need to go back to this person individually. A broom is a good idea because it has the length and it has this sort of retrieval ending which is what people always say about brooms. Oh, I mean, you can brush the floor with them, but that retrieval ending, that's the main thing. Yeah, I think a broom is probably a good idea. Make sure you use it the right way, because of the way, otherwise you're just going to be hitting a giraffe further along a roof, and that's not a fun game for anyone. But yeah, I mean, yes, I think is the answer to your question. Let us know if you've got the giraffe back, and if indeed it was definitely a stuffed toy, or if we should be ringing the sort of zoo type safari park type place to wonder why there's a giraffe stuck on your roof thanks dr g uh, enjoy saving lives or being a dj whichever kind of doctor you are i'm going to do another one why not i've got another question and this question is um <laughs> uh, would the world be better or worse if everyone behaved like cats and this is also on twitter and this is from polly wally b um if you are indeed a Wally, would the world be better or worse if everyone behaved like cats? Okay. 
depends which cats. Uh, I used to have cats that sat on your knee and were really affectionate and really lovely. And now I've got one cat that wants it on your knee but is really lovely and likes to purr and mew and ate food out of my hand the other day and I felt like fucking Dr. Doolittle, who was a proper doctor, I imagine, <laughs> or first name. But I've also got a cat that likes to sit behind my desk chair, just not say anything. And then when I get up, if I've got bare legs, he's very judgy and he likes to scratch them. I sometimes feel like the media do that to women anyway. So I think the world, in some respects, is behaving a lot like my slightly arsier cat. Maybe we are already behaving. Some people are nice and some people aren't. Some cats are nice and some cats aren't. This has got very deep and philosophical. Um, And also, we do shit in toilets, which are sort of like trays. I don't... I do cover it up. I cover it up with toilet roll. Especially if it won't flush. I cover it with a lot of toilet roll then. And I write sorry on the top bit of toilet roll. So in answer to your question, I think the world would be exactly the same as it is, Polly Wally B. Excellent questions this week. Thanks very much, guys. Bye-bye. Sorry about the plane. If you'd like me to answer one of your questions, then tweet us at UK using the hashtag SMQT. Thank you. Standard issue for all women. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, our weekly ace-fired cross-court past our dumbfounded opponent, the goddamn man, as we celebrate all things female sportsy. First up, not a celebration, to be fair, rather a mournful wail in response to the cancellation of Nicola Adams' third professional bout, which would have been her US debut and should have happened on Saturday. Adams was supposed to take on Alexandra Vlach, whose name we've already established last week. I can't actually pronounce, um, but I'm from Essex, yeah, so pronunciation isn't really my bag, babes. Anyway, this was uh, going to be on the undercard of the Gennady Golovkin and Saul Alvarez fights on Saturday, but it was cancelled due to a problem with Latch's pre-fight blood test. Adams tweeted of her devastation to have been prevented from fighting, and of course, with such a massive platform for women's sport now squandered, it's really, really frustrating. Adams had said earlier in the week in an interview that she thought that it was the the first time a women's fight had been on the undercard of such a massive fight. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's pretty rubbish, really. But Adams is cracking, and we're sure that her time will come soon enough. In better news, the inaugural Tyrrell's Premier 15s League got underway on Saturday, uh, Saturday the 16th of September, that is, which sees the top 10 women's teams in rugby in the UK competing. And it's apparently an investment of around £2.4 million by the Rugby Football Union aimed at increasing the talent pool available for international duty by improving the standards in the women's game. And guys, this is how you do it, right? This is how we get better for investment and promotion. And in turn, more people become interested, yada, yada, yada. I know I'm a bit of a broken record on this, but look at it this way. A weekend that should have seen, and all right, it didn't work out this way in the end, but it should have seen a women's boxing fight on the undercard at a, at a Vegas fight between two well-known boxers and a brand new top flight rugby league is massive, massive progress. So I think, you know, that's something that we should all be shouting about and, and, and applauding. 
Anyway, in further sporty news this week, we've got the World Road Championship starting today, which is Sunday. Uh, obviously, you're not listening to it on Sunday because I'm talking now. And as previously discussed, I don't know how to time travel, soz. So I think that Lizzie Danan is going to be racing. That's Nay Armitstead. Uh, you'll remember her from being like, very good in the Olympics and all that. She has just had her appendix removed a couple of weeks ago, so she might not be in top nick. But as the 2015 world champion, we are keeping our fingers crossed. She is joined on the GB squad by Eleanor Barker, who's moving over from track to road cycling. So it is a bit of a gamble, but we've seen it loads in men's cycling. For example, Bradley Wiggins and Mark Cavendish are two pretty high-profile examples of that. So Eleanor Barker and Hannah Barnes will be representing Great Britain in the individual time trial, which has already happened, if you're listening to this on Wednesday. That happened on Tuesday. And Lizzie Danan should hopefully be up on Saturday the 23rd in the elite road race. That's it for women's sportsings this week. More very much next week. If you would like to talk to me about women's sport, not just general stuff. I mean, general stuff you want, but that could be weird. You can tweet me on at Inspiragen, and I would love to hear your views and opinions on all of this sporty gubbins. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you did this week? This week I watched 1942's Bambi. Oh, 1942? Yeah. 1942. No um, one was alive back then. Who the fuck was drawing it? Good point. It's based on a book by someone called Felix Salton. No, me neither. No. And the book's called Bambi, A Life in the Woods, and was apparently a book for adults, <laughs> which is weird. I'm glad you're laughing, because I think it's slightly odd too. D- Disney... The Pope. A life in the woods. <laughs> Disney acquired it from Metro Goldwyn Mayer right after they had to abandon plans to turn it into a live action film. You've heard me, a live action film, which is either the stupidest or the most sweetly optimistic thing I have ever heard in my life. Okay, quick, quick question: If an actual genuine actor was to play the role of Bambi, who would it be? I, d- oh, I don't fuck. know if that's what they meant by live action. I'm having my I'm kind of wondering whether they were just trying to push fawns onto ice and film it and see what happened. <laughs> so by, in Halifax? by live action, you mean they were going to get a deer to talk? Oh, they were going to get either. They were going to get humans. That, that can only mean one of two things. They were going to get humans to dress up as animals or they were going to try and train animals to talk. What is it? It's like, look who's talking now, where John Travolta's just dubbing <laughs> or, Bambi. Uh, who knows? But they did abandon this plan, so clearly it wasn't workable. I think it's got legs, mate. I mean, wobbly legs. Hey. Hey. And, 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 and Disney picked up on it. I did see this when I was very little, and I don't particularly remember being especially taken with it. You're still quite little. In fact... <laughs> The only thing, I'm just plowing through that. In fact, the only thing I can remember clearly, apart from the fact that Bambi's mum dies. What? Sorry. Is no, the know. line from Thumper, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. So, that was Dunleavy Does Disney. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs> that line, sorry, that line, is that where it originates? Like, did teachers steal it from Thumper? I think, I think so. I can't remember anywhere else it was used in popular culture before then. I mean, it might have come from the book. But Fucking hell. 
Certainly, if anyone's used it post 1942, then it must be coming from there. Have you people seen it? You people, you you people. You, you, you you women Your who people. just wandered into the studio, you have too. you seen it? I have seen it, but many many years ago. I haven't seen it recently. Um, not as many years ago as 1942, but certainly when I was a, a tiny you person, I don't really remember much apart from Bambi, the the deer. Bambi on, on the ice, his mum died in a tragic shooting incident, and Thumper the Rabbit, which I used to have a little pot ornament of, that I think I bought in a zoo. Also, I've got a friend called Bambi, and I like to tell people it's because his mum was shot when he was little, but it's not true, it's because he got drunk and fell over once. It has become the universal name for people who've maybe even just once had trouble walking. They now, Roger Black, the athlete, was always known as Bambi. Was he? Yeah, because apparently when he went, he needed 400 metres, apparently when he went around the last corner, his legs were always going a bit weird. So people called him Bambi. I have got some good news for you, though, Hannah. What's that? I do not fancy any of the characters in Bambi. <sighs> Thank God. I don't know if I fancy any of them because I haven't seen it since I was about eight or nine. The only thing I can remember about it was that it was tedious and um, and traumatic all at the same time which is very like grief right quite yeah grief tedious and traumatic yeah it's both of those uh, but things grief is also funny well sometimes but grief is also funny only when you're involved yeah um not so much in bambi it's not a laugh a minute film from what i can remember uh, no, no no it's not and that's that's one of the faults of it i think okay. that grief can be funny which seems like the perfect time to ask did you like it well, um, let's say no. Okay. Um, which is not to say that it isn't good, because it quite possibly is, given its age, etc. But much like other early Disney films, it's fair to say that pretty much nothing happens. Um, I've come to the conclusion that the death of Bambi's mum sticks in everybody's mind, not because it's traumatic, and more on that later, but because virtually nothing else happens. I mean, the opening's terrible. We've established this already with all early Disney films. Loads of words, terrible song. Anyway, so there's this principle, and it turns out to be Bambi. And then we have about half an hour or so of what can only be described as frolicking around to incidental music. I'd give I'd give um, good money to frolic for half an hour to incidental music. And there are probably clubs that cater to that. Um, Excellent. <laughs> I'd, I'll take. I'll accept a list. Um, but if I've learned anything from doing Dunleavy Does Disney, it's that that really isn't my thing. And I come to conclusion it's kind of like jazz, in that I'm sure it's all very accomplished. But it's just not for me. But in the case of Bambi, it's not actually very accomplished. For some reason, huge chunks of it seem to take place in what looks like a smog. There's a snowstorm in which Bambi's looking for his mother and it looks like a ticker tape parade, which gives (laughs) off very mixed messages. Anyway, the long and the short of it is that Bambi's born. He makes friends with a rabbit called Thumper and a boy raccoon who somehow looks like a female poly walnuts. Um, <laughs> is, is, is the raccoon sat there with, like, tinfoil shining up against his neck? So yeah, and then he, he tells a joke to one person and then tells it to the person that's next to them. Does he have a, a portrait of Bambi that he's made to look like Napoleon? <laughs> no, but he, 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 he is called Flower because he sits oh, in some flowers. I remember Flower. 
And then there's the, there's an April shower that's accompanied by a song called Trip Trip Drop. April showers, little April showers. Yeah, and there's thunder and lightning, and a lot of it feels like very very frightening me, Mamma Mia. A no. lot of it feels like the that's same as with jazz that the people who are making it are having a lot more fun than the people who are watching it. Bambi's mum takes him to a meadow, which appears to have been drawn by a small child. <laughs> he meets another deer there, including, or some other deer, in fact, including one called Failing, who will one day be his doe slash bitch. And then there's this pack of deer who all jump in I unison. Together, they all go in unison together, jumping around. Up. They're, they're like the red arrows of the forest. They're always in formation. That's what deers do. Yeah. Then there's this big deer, and he turns up, and Bambi's mother points at him and sees, says, you know, see Billy Big Antlers over there. He's lived for a long time, and he's very wise, which is why he's known as the Great Prince of the Forest. You know, not because he killed Purple Rain at karaoke. Um, <laughs> anyway, then there's the stampede and Bambi loses his mum and the Great Prince turns up and they all emote a lot by virtue of moving their ears. And That's then, how I uh, display emotion as well. Yeah. Jen, you? Yeah. Under nose twitch from Jen. Yeah. yeah. And then they escape. And at this point, we've all worked out that, that that's Bambi's dad. Yeah. But nobody said that, which yeah. is kind of weird. Why is she keeping it a secret? I don't know. Um, and then everything starts to go to shit because man is in the forest. Oh, always. And as we all know, man fucks up everything eventually. Oh, it sounds like they couldn't even draw the forest. Yeah. Well, I've got a couple of fun facts for you here. Uh, Disney was apparently so keen, and this is Walt Disney, was apparently so keen on... Nazis. The, <laughs> on the idea that the man is a total bastard that he wanted to have one of the hunters burned to death in a film. That is... In the scene, sorry. That is fucking bleak. Yeah. Burned to death. I mean, a drowning. I could accept a drowning. Oh, that, that's horrible. Yeah. Like, have you, like, loads of animal die, loads of animals die in Disney films, Jen. And we are but animals. I know, we but are do you, mere sausage cases. Do you not think burning someone burning, to I death, that's to extreme. Death is, is quite far. I think more cartoons should have burnings in okay. them. Okay. Um, moving on. Second fun <laughs> fact. Um... The hunting community hated this film. Wow, really? Apparently Even in, before someone got burned to death. In, in an editorial in Outdoor Life, it was written by a man called Raymond Brown, who I have a friend called Raymond Brown, not the same person. Hello, my friend Raymond. It called Bambi, this editorial called Bambi, the worst insult ever offered in any form to American sportsmen. I'm guessing they're talking about white sportsmen here. Certainly. Um, this is um, just a few years after Jesse Owen, right? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. And what happened to Bennett the other day in Houston? I don't know if you saw that. Yes, I did, yeah. Um, which is pretty shocking. There's something for you to Google, people. Anyway, here comes the shooting incident, which happens off screen. In fact, all Bambi actually gets to know about this is that his mum is following him in a chase and then she never turns up and she never comes back. Um, there's little explanation does that mean my dad got shot because he disappeared <laughs> and he never came back uh, maybe but then his dad turns up and tells him he's his dad which he does in an incredibly vague way he actually just calls him son which That's pretty that, much babe. means well I don't know it means that 95% of younger men that my dad met 
must be related to me because it is a kind of, come on, son, you're not doing that right. Maybe your dad was trying to tell you you had a very big family. Well, I do have a very big family, but I, I don't think it's that big. They go off together. Anyway, this, this, this is the scene that's supposed to be the most traumatic thing in cinema ever. This is the thing that apparently made Paul McCartney interested in animal rights. Bambi's mum being shot. And yet in the film... I think it was getting his end away with Linda McCartney. Well, well I don't want to say anything, but... In the film, it's treated like nothing. It immediately cuts from her dying to birds singing cheerfully about the spring. Now, obviously, time has passed for Bambi the deer, but no time has passed for Bambi the film. Okay. Everybody literally just gets over it, which is probably makes this one of the earliest examples of fridging in cinema. You know, oh. she's out of the way now. What's next? I've got a question. Yes. Do you think Bambi is responsible indirectly for that video of Paul McCartney where he's talking about meatfreemondays.com in like a weird sort of pseudo-Caribbean accent? I think we're all responsible for Meat Free Mondays, Jim. <laughs> you know the one where he's yeah. going... <laughs> <laughs> Meat Free Monday. Uh, no, com. I have no idea what you're talking oh, about. Oh, it's incredible. Jim put it on her pick of the internet. Oh, that it's we incredible. Used to do I don't magazine. want to see it. I think it no, was amazing. Like, you need to see it. Out. And then at the end, he goes, You can do it right now, please. <laughs> it's the worst thing you'll ever see. With and then your it just eyes. flashes to a freezer full of corn sausages. This actually sounds more traumatic than <laughs> Bambi's mother being shot, having seen Bambi's mother be then shot it recently. It just cuts to a load of birds singing in springtime. Yeah. <laughs> this is horrific. <laughs> Anyway, Sorry. moving back to the film. So Bambi's grown up now, that's what's happened, and it's spring, and he and Thumper and Flower the Skunk are informed by an owl that oh, every... Is he a skunk, not a raccoon? You said raccoon. He's a skunk, oh, I'm he's sure a skunk. of it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I don't know why I said raccoon. I was an idiot. Anyway, they get informed by an owl that it's spring now, so everybody wants to get some. Um, Owls are so and wise. he uses the word. He uses the word that everyone is twitterpated, which is probably the best example of a made-up word that works in an entirely different context. Seventy years later, twitterpated, ever likely to see twitterpated. When was the last time you were twitterpated, Jen? I don't know what that means. I think no. it means. You I think it's it, it's 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 a mix-up of a portmanteau of like Twitter being mm-hmm. birds mm-hmm. and titivated. And anticipated, all being mushed up into one What's word. What's the word, Hannah? Twitterpated. What? Anyway, the lads, oy, oy. they go out to meet women, including a rabbit that has like a big bushy beard. And then more leaves start blowing around than in Pocahontas, if that can even be possible, despite the fact that it's actually spring. Is it a mystical rabbit? No, it's not. Okay. It's just, I think, again, it's just like the animators playing jazz. Sure. Next thing, dog attack, forest fire, dad rescue, fall off a waterfall together, all wash up on an island that appears to be about eight foot by eight foot. Hang on, you said nothing yeah. happens in this film. Yeah. Well, this is this is the... Is the, it all off screen? This, no, 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 this all is right. basically the end ten minutes. Oh, it's like twilight, isn't it? It's the end ten minutes. There's this rush of action in which all these things happen. Then the action leaps forward to next spring, like none of it ever happened. Thumper... Has two has had kids and in an unconventional choice appears to be a stay at home dad. It's rabbits for you. Uh, meanwhile, Faline has two fawns and Bambi is up on the hill preening like his dad. And then everyone says about the kids that Bambi must be so proud, like he'd actually done any of the hard work involved in giving birth. And the women get credit for nothing. The end. So just to return to an earlier question, 
Did, did you like it? Well, Disney liked it. Apparently, it's his favourite film. Uh, and I think the Disney company must love it because so many bits of it are repeated in other films. Like, off the top of my head, The Fox and the Hound and The Lion King, both of which we've already done for this section, lean really heavily on Bambi. There must be others. But I didn't especially enjoy it. I have to give it credit for one thing, is that the message that you shouldn't shoot animals and ruin their habitat is probably a Disney message I can really get behind, possibly for the first time doing these. I have one final fun fact before I give it a score, which is that there is apparently a sequel to Bambi. Mm. Anybody want to guess what it's called? Bambi oh. 2. It's called Bambi 2. Yeah. Oh, I was going to go with Bambi 2. It was released straight to video in 2006, and according to Wikipedia, and I quote... Set in the middle of Bambi, Bambi 2 shows the great prince of the forest struggling to raise a motherless Bambi, which sounds like the worst 80s sitcom ever. I was hoping it was just a load of rutting, a load of deers rutting. In 2006, the best fucking title they could come up with was Bambi Bambi 2. You would have thought it at least would have had a colon, Bambi 2, colon. Bambi 2, a single dad in the woods. What the fuck? Funnily enough, three men and a little fawn. Well, funnily enough, I went camping with my brother, who is a single dad, over the over the holidays. Was there a lot of rutting? Uh, well, no, I was with my brother. But, um, but um, yes, having having been recently in the forest, attempting to uh, to uh, be a single father to a dad, I don't know how you were much being fun a single is, father to a dad. We'll just cut this now because you're being difficult. <laughs> but <laughs> did anyone? You're the worst dad ever. Did anyone get burnt to death on your trip? We can't no, talk we... about that, Jen, until the court case is okay. over. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. What score are we giving Bambi? Well, like I say, it's boring, but I like the message, so I'm torn. So I'm going to give it. Two and a half. First half, guys. First half. Mm. Two and a half. What? I'm going to give it two and a half people prying a gun from Charlton Heston's cold, dead hand (laughs) out of five. That's all for this week. Thanks for downloading us. You're probably still reeling from Hannah's rendition of various Blondie tunes. Uh, To be honest with you, she was doing it in the pub for a good three hours and it may never leave our heads. That is an earworm and a half. Next week it's a gig cast and you'll be able to hear when we chatted to Olivia Coleman, Jenny Eclair and Kerry Godleyman at the Leicester Square Theatre on September 3rd. It was a bit of a corker. There were some interesting questions and you'll find out what Olivia Coleman would or wouldn't do with something belonging to Judy Dench. And you're pretty much not going to be able to guess what that is. Before that, we'll be having some Sunday Chops action. You can hear a little bit more, or quite a lot more in fact, of Carrie Adloy chatting to Sarah Pascoe about her new stage adaptation of Pride and Prejudice and other stuff. And also there'll be a longer version of Leanne Davis's absolutely gorgeous piece about her mum and dealing with Alzheimer's. So keep an ear out, an eye out, an ear out, an eerie eye, an eye ear out for those on Sunday. Uh, we'll be flagging those up on our social media which if you're not already following you absolutely should be doing we're on facebook and instagram and you can find us on twitter at standard issue uk our music was composed and recorded by barry hilton all rights reserved 
We have an archive full to brimming with excellent articles over at standardissuemagazine.com and our Sarah has a whole section of her website devoted to us. That is where you will find information about our live events, which, you know, we know that you're listening to the Gigcast and we know that you like them. So come along and watch us move our mouths right in front of your faces. I mean, at a distance, there'll be like a stage and seats. If you've ever been to a theatre, it'll be like that. But you will be able to see our mouths move. And there's quite often, and starting to be a little bit more, some physical comedy. You know, there's been some yoga. There was some dancing at the last one. So, stuff that your ears can't hear when you're listening to the podcast. We've got some absolutely amazing guests coming up. The next gig is at Leicester Square Theatre on October the 5th, and we have Rebecca Front, Scarlett Moffat, and Evelyn Mock, and it's going to be cracking. Um, we also have, of course, our Sarah, and Hannah is hosting that one. If that all floats your boat, buy a ticket, come along. You can check out the listings on Sarah's site, which is sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue and it's probably a little bit more succinct than i just made that we bloody love to hear from you you can write to us at mailbag at standardissuemagazine.com or follow us on the aforementioned social media sites also give us individuals a bit of a follow you know give us some love hannah is on at that dunleavy jen is on at inspire jen and i'm on at mixta noonan all of our podcasts are available on itunes and acast that's it for now and until the next time, stay frosty, champs. Standard issue for all women. <laughs>